This morning, we're not going to be doing a full study of a passage in 1 Thessalonians, but we are going to start there and come back to it. I invite you to take your Bible and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I'm going to read a section that we'll be in for the next probably three or four weeks. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 1 through 8. This is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Coming to chapter four of 1 Thessalonians, we come to an important transition in the style and in the tone of the message. Chapters one through three were focused primarily on Paul's relationship to the Thessalonians. We got to see his affection for them, his love. We got to see his motivation for ministry. And just to remind us of what's going on in the background, remember Paul was separated from them because of persecution. He sent Timothy back to them. And Timothy then comes back to Paul with an update. And that report from Timothy would have likely included some positive things, things that the Thessalonian church was doing well. It would have included some areas that presented a challenge for the Thessalonians. And it might even have included some questions they had. And those would have been the kinds of topics that Paul had in mind when he writes them this letter. Coming to chapter four, we're still gonna see Paul's heart, but we're coming now to some specific instruction. These are gonna be very important for us, very applicable. The first topic Paul addresses specifically is sexual purity. Sexual purity is a critical issue in our church. And I say that because it's been a critical issue in every generation. Every generation and every culture since the fall has strayed from God's design for sexual intimacy and ours is no different. So we all need this kind of reminder. We need this kind of exhortation. Sexual purity is not an obscure topic in the Bible. Some people have said things like that. Well, God whispers about these kinds of things, but that's not the way it is. God is abundantly clear about what his design is for romance and for sex. It's not a hidden message. 
We see it all throughout the Bible. Sexual purity matters to God and it should matter to us. And because of how significant an issue this is to God and because of how assaulted we are in this culture, we're gonna take our time on this topic. We'll be coming back to First Thessalonians but also in the next few weeks addressing other passages and other ways to address uh, this issue because I want to help equip us and myself as individuals but also as a church to pursue God's design for sex and for sexual expression. In preparation for that, this morning is going to be more of an introduction to that. It's going to function a lot more like a Bible study than a, than a sermon proper or a formal sermon. Uh, we're not going to do a formal outline, so just to set you at peace when you, st- when you write notes, whatever stands out to you, whatever you feel is helpful to you, you jot that down. We're going to be moving through a lot of passages. If you're comfortable flipping in your Bible, feel free to do that. If you'd rather not, you can jot the verses down and study them later. At the end, we'll have some time to reflect and jot some things down if you want to share with someone else. But as we think about this topic of sexual purity, which is so needed in our culture and the growing perversion we're seeing, not just in the culture, but promoted by the culture, even in our public schools, many of them, we realize that, you should realize that sexual purity is a subset of a larger category, and that's the category of holiness and righteousness. Sexual purity is one expression or one facet of a righteous and holy life. If you're still here in 1 Thessalonians, go back with me to verse 12 of the previous chapter. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12, we covered this last week. Paul is praying for the church. In verse 12 he says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. And then we come to verse 13. This is the goal, not just of their love, but we could say it's the goal of Paul's ministry. This was the overarching objective, verse 13, that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Paul knew that was the end. As Christians, we're gonna stand before God one day and we will be faultless, blameless, because sin will have been removed. We will have been glorified. And in thinking through that end of perfect holiness, it's also important for us to go back to the beginning. And that helps us have the big picture in mind. We see all the perversion in the world. We feel it with our own lusts in our hearts. And we should remember that that's not how God created the world. The world God made was without sin without perversion, without deviation from his plan. At the end of six days of creation, Genesis 1 says, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And that included the end of Genesis 2, a man and his wife naked and unashamed. God made them, Genesis 1 says, male and female. He made two distinct sexes and he made them in his image. Being made in the image of God, on the one hand, says there are some similarities between us and God, but it also carries with it a responsibility. God placed mankind, male and female, to represent him on the earth. He said, to them I give dominion, and then he told them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. 
That was because they were placed here as God's representatives. Just like God has dominion over all creation, mankind was to spread and demonstrate that dominion over all the earth, always with the heart and the character of God. Mankind was created as an earthly expression of who God is. But we know that's not how things stayed. We come to chapter three of Genesis and Satan deceives Eve. Adam abandons his role as protector of his wife as he who would uh, oversee the the obedience in in his family. And because of that, Romans 5 says, sin comes into the world. Through one man came sin and then came death. And ever since that day, every child of Adam, every every, uh, descendant of the human race has a sinful, rebellious, wicked heart. We reject God's desires and God's plans and we want our own. We want to pursue things our way. And in response to the repeated generations of wickedness, God in Genesis 6 sends a flood. He destroys the entire earth. He wipes out every man and animal except a few and one family that was saved in the ark. Noah was saved because Genesis tells us he was a righteous man. He was not perfect, but he refused to follow the pattern of the world. And then God tells Noah the same thing he told Adam. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. You have dominion. Go be my representative. And it didn't take long, if you know the story for Noah, again, to fall into sin and for the world to continue in sin. In the years and generations that followed Noah, wickedness endured. But God's plan was that in this dark world, there would be a light. And that light was going to be the nation of Israel. That light was going to be the descendants of Abraham. That was Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. God promises to Abraham, you're gonna have descendants and you will be a nation and that nation will bring blessing to the world. That nation will have the task of what I originally gave to Adam and then to Noah of representing me on the earth. In the book of Exodus, God frees Israel from slavery in Egypt and then he gives them his law. Here's how you build the tabernacle, here's how to worship me, and here's how you are to live. So we get the 10 commandments and then the outflow of those principles. Why give them the law? They had spent years in Egypt watching the paganism and the sexual immorality. Then they're gonna travel to the promised land of Canaan and they're gonna again see the paganism and the sexual morality of the Canaanites. And so they needed the law of God to keep them walking in truth. I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Leviticus. Not a common book we turn to. Third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, chapter 11. Leviticus chapter 11. I'll probably be coming back to Leviticus a few times in this series on sexual sin and sexual purity. In Exodus, with the Ten Commandments, God began to give Israel his law, but in Leviticus, it's much more specific. Some people think Leviticus, and they think Levi's, the priests, and this is a book for priests, but it wasn't a book for the priests. It was a book that talked about the priests, but it was a book for the entire nation. One year after they left Egypt, God spent a a month giving Moses the law for his people, and that's what the book of Leviticus records. If 
The people reject the ways of the outside world. If they honor the commands God gives them for life and for worship, he would bless them and they would enjoy fellowship as his people. What I want to show you uh, briefly is the motivation of the book. The motivation of giving the people the law. Look at Leviticus chapter 11, verse 44. Near the end almost of the chapter. Leviticus eleven forty-four. This is the reasoning behind God's many commands. Leviticus eleven forty-four says, For I am Yahweh, when you see all capitalized, that's the name of God. I am Yahweh, your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. The purpose of the people's holiness, which is going to be expressed through this law, the purpose was to reflect the holiness of God. And he repeats that again in verse 45, the next verse. For I am Yahweh who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Those are major verses in Leviticus. You can mark them if you want. Holiness is the major theme of the book. Everything you read in Leviticus, even the thing that sounds weird, what you can eat, what you can't eat, what kind of clothing you had to wear, all this was designed by God so that his people would stand out. They would be different. They were to be intentional about every decision they made because they were to be holy. Holy means set apart, different. They were to stand out. God wanted his people set apart from the rest of the world. He wants them different. Jump over to Leviticus chapter 19. Again, we'll see how important this is to God and for his people. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 1. It says, And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Same idea. Jump over again to chapter 20. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 7. This is specifically going to be, it leads up into commandments regarding sexual purity. But chapter 20, verse 7, here's what God says to his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy. For I am, I'm sorry, chapter 20, verse 7, yes. For I am Yahweh, your God. Then we have verse 26, same chapter. Chapter 20, verse 26. You shall be holy. Did I mix those up? Did I read it wrong? I'm good. Chapter 20, verse, chapter 20, verse 26. You shall be holy to me, for I, Yahweh, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. The law was never intended by God to be the way someone gains salvation. He says, I've already saved you. I redeemed you from slavery in Egypt, but now, since you belong to me, you will be holy because I'm holy. Later, he tells them, you, in in, in obeying my law, shall demonstrate to the world, to the watching nations, what wisdom is, what righteousness is. In chapter 21, the ESV has a title there. It says, Holiness and the Priests. It's the instructions for how to ordain the priests and how to set up their, the priestly system. 
And you see the exact same principle. God is holy, and so his people are to be holy. Look at chapter 21 of Leviticus, verse eight. Speaking of any new priest, you shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, Yahweh, who sanctify you, am holy. So you have the same principle for the priests as for the people. Be holy because God is holy. Now you think about the book of Leviticus and we do recognize that we are not Israelites. We are not Jews. There are uh, laws in Leviticus that we do not obey today because we are not Old Testament Israel. We have, there's there's big chunks of the law of Moses that don't apply. For example, the dietary restrictions But the general principle for us as God's people still applies. And that is that God wants us to be holy. Jump over almost to the end of your Bible to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter one. I know I'm belaboring the point, but it's a point that we need to tell ourselves over and over again. God is holy, his people need to be holy. Look at 1 Peter chapter one. So after Hebrews and James, 1 and 2 Peter, that's before 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. 1 Peter chapter one, verse 14. 1 Peter 1, 14. We, we covered this back in 2020, soon after everything closed down. Might sound familiar to you. If it doesn't, that's okay. 1 Peter, though, chapter one, verse 14, it says, and he's writing to now Gentile Christians, he says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. That is, don't go following the desires you had before when you didn't know God. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Where'd Peter get that? Leviticus. Verse 17, he continues, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, so if you call him as if you call on him as father, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So these are pagan Gentiles. They didn't grow up in the, in the priestly system of Leviticus, but they did grow up in the markets and in the pagan temples and in the temples where you would sell or buy slaves. And gold and silver was used to purchase someone. He says, you were purchased, not with gold or silver though. You were purchased with something eternal, the precious blood of Christ. Unlike Old Testament Jews, we're on the other side of the cross. We know the sacrifice that God has provided to rescue us. And so, even more so, we are to showcase the holiness of our Heavenly Father. Since God is holy, we who confess Jesus Christ must be holy. 
And what's so critical for us as Christians to understand is that on the one hand, we do need good doctrine, but we also need good lives. We need to study, we need to learn certain things intellectually, we want to grow in our understanding of the faith, but those truths are supposed to flow into a holy life. They're supposed to change you. To say it more technically, you need orthodoxy and you need orthopraxy. Orthodoxy refers to right doctrine, sound doctrine, healthy doctrine. Orthopraxy is good living, healthy living. You need both. Intellectually, we need to understand the holiness of God and practically, we need to demonstrate his holiness in our lives. And either because of personality or maybe in seasons of life, I think we tend to focus on one side more than the other. Some people like to focus on the doctrine side. Maybe you're one of those people right now. Someone who you like to understand theology, you like to ask questions, but maybe not as focused on how that truth is supposed to translate into personal holiness. If your focus on doctrine and theology far outweighs your focus on personal holiness, that leads to lawlessness. And Paul addressed that in Romans 6. There were people even in the church saying, well, I'm saved. I gave my life to Christ. I understand. I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone. I can't earn my salvation. I believe in him. He died. He rose again. He saved me. I'm clean. So I can live however I want. Why don't I just keep on sinning because it feels so good to be forgiven? And Paul said, may it never be. There are still people like that today and we can fall into that trap. We, We claim to be Christian, maybe we even are Christian. There are people who say they're Christians but they live however they want. Assuming that just because they know the facts about Christianity, they're good. It's a dangerous place to be. If your faith in God has produced no change at the level of your heart, that's not true Christianity. That's self-deception. That's what James says. Let's not be only hearers of the word, but doers of the word. The other side of the spectrum is people who focus on holiness and morality and Christian ethics, but they don't care much for theology. They care about doing things the right way. So it could be religious rituals. It could just be everyday life. Maybe you fall more on that side. The side that places a greater emphasis on biblical morality and ethics. But what's missing there is a connection to God's truth. You don't have the doctrine which is supposed to come first. And that's what leads to righteousness What ends up happening is you don't understand why you should live a certain way. And you can't teach that to someone else. At its worst, you can get someone who is so detached from God's truth that they begin to advocate rules for living that aren't rooted in scripture, they're rooted in tradition. They're rooted in, that's just how we do things, don't ask questions. We need to be careful about that. We never want to pursue doctrine in a way that's detached from a holy life, and we never want to pursue a holy life in a way that's detached from doctrine. So when your kids ask, Mom, Dad, why can't we do that? You need to have an answer for them. And you connect it back to the truth of God. So having said 
all that and understanding our responsibility to live a holy life, to connect doctrine with living, how do we grow in that? How do we make progress in, in, in showcasing the holiness of God in our everyday life? You can turn now to First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter four. Before Paul gets to the specific instruction regarding sexual purity, he gives a little introduction. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse one. It says, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. Two words start that verse that are transition words, finally and then. First word can be a little confusing because it's chapter four. He's still got another chapter left. Why would he say finally? The Greek word there doesn't actually mean finally. There just isn't a, a, a good word. It just a, a marks a transition to a new subject. Maybe um, furthermore might be a better translation. And then you have the word then, which is the word therefore in the Greek. So it's like Paul is saying, furthermore, therefore, there's a transition to a new subject, but there's a connection to something that he's just said, and the connection is what we covered at the end of of, uh, chapter three, verse 13. Paul is praying for and thinking about the church's holiness, and in doing so, he gives them some instruction. And again, even in, in dealing with what is often a difficult subject or a touchy subject like sexual purity, you can see Paul's love, you can see Paul's pastoral heart. It takes a very humble tone with them. Now not to the degree though that he would erase the significance of what he's saying. He says we ask you, we, we urge you. But he also tells them we're doing this in the Lord Jesus. In other words, Paul is speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ. He he doesn't have inherent authority. He's not saying, do this just because I said so. He's coming with a message which Jesus Christ has already taught. He comes, therefore, with the authority of Jesus the Lord, the master of all creation. And he repeats that idea in verse two. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. But again, there's a gentleness here. He's not saying, I'm your pastor, this has to stop. He's saying, you know this, I've taught you this. And at the end of verse one, he says, but I want you to do so more and more. You're still growing, but you're going in the right direction. Do it more and more. And and so that just connects to the idea that Paul's message and Paul's request here is not something new. Sexual purity is not an advanced level. Well, once I get you saved and once you understand all this doctrine, then finally we'll, we'll get to sexual purity. Paul already taught them that. He says, verse one, we urge you, we ask you that just as you received this from us. He had taught it already. In the few short weeks that he was with them, however long that was, he taught them. He gave them doctrinal instruction and he gave them practical instruction. This is what the church had received from him and that's what all church leaders should be providing for their church as well. 
Parents should be providing for their children. There needs to be doctrinal instruction. There needs to be practical instruction. There has to be the truth of Christ, and you have to be taught as well the ways of Christ. That's part of the Great Commission. Go make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This is what the life of a Christian is like. So for those of us who belong to and have trusted in Jesus Christ, Romans says we're free from the law. What he means there is we're free from the law of Moses. He doesn't mean we're free from the law of Christ. Romans 6 says we have become slaves of God. And in being his slaves, we need to learn how to walk. That's the word Paul uses here. It's a common word in the New Testament regarding our life, our conduct. He says you receive from us how you ought to walk It's a synonym for daily conduct. It's a word that includes your actions, your thoughts, your words, your decisions. That's your walk, and that's what we all need help with, isn't it? How do I get my life to match up with the holiness of God? I I want that to happen in all areas of my life, but it's so important, especially sexually. How do I make progress in that? Well, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us a wonderful starting point here in the middle of verse one. And it comes in the form of three short words. He says, we instructed you how to walk and how, here are the three words, to please God. That's how Paul describes his teaching. I taught you how to walk. I taught you how to please God. He didn't say, I taught you how to be good Christians. I taught you how to have good families. I taught you even how to be holy. He didn't say any of that stuff. He says, I taught you how to please God. That's the foundation for a life that honors God and for a life that expresses his holiness and for a life that's effective in his purposes. It all starts with a desire to please God. God, if you take anything away from our time today, I don't remember anything the pastor said, take three words away, to please God. If your primary, primary motivation is to please God, the rest of it takes care of itself. And what an important reminder that is because there are so many motivations, whether we say them out loud or, or think them deliberately, it's going on. We go through life thinking, well, how can I avoid this difficulty? How can I keep my wife happy? How can I bring peace? How can I avoid this difficulty? How can I impress this person? How can I feel less guilty? And instead of all those things, instead of anything else, our motivation as a Christian is supposed to be to please God. This is something our culture has completely fallen away from because the spirit of the age is you do you. You do whatever you want, whatever makes you happy, and don't let anybody tell you you shouldn't live that way. You mold God to the person who most approves you, and that's who God is to you. That's not what it means to be a Christian. You take God as he is through Jesus Christ. 
and the driving force of those who belong to God are to please him. So why do you get out of bed in the morning? The correct answer is to please God. Why did you show up at church to please God? Why do you love your wife? Why do you show patience? Why do you respond that way to a coworker? Why do you reach out to someone in love and kindness to please God? Psalm 19, a common known psalm, especially for those who want to uphold the power and the sufficiency of scripture. Psalm 19 is Paul is, is, is David, the psalmist, praising God for his word and all, all the effects of his word, but it ends with David saying this, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Theologically, he's lifting up the word of God, but he ends practically by saying, I want to be pleasing to you. Psalm 51, when David's confessing his sin, he's seeking forgiveness. He wants to be cleansed of what he had done when he committed adultery, when he kills a man. He says in Psalm 51, you, Lord, will not delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. His conscience wouldn't let him off the hook. God, I gave you a lamb. I gave you a goat. I'm done. He says, no, that doesn't please God. That's what he wanted. And he said, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart and the contrite spirit. David's driving desire because of the spirit of God was to please his heavenly father. And that's what we're supposed to want as well. Because we're sinners, there are so many other wants that battle against that. But the driving force and the starting point for a life of holiness and a life of purity is that. Let's do what pleases God. That should be our constant motivation. In speaking about unbelievers, Romans 8, 8 says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They don't have the capacity to do so. Apart from Jesus Christ, no, no unbeliever can do even an act that we would say is demonstrating kindness and love where God would say, you know, that's really nice. I approve of that act. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God because they're dead in their sins and they're on Satan's side whether they know it or not. Maybe more well known, Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith it is impossible to please God. So the first step in pleasing God is coming in humility, you repent of your sin and you trust fully and only in Jesus Christ. Like the songs we sang today, believing that he is the son of God, believing that he came to do what we couldn't do. He lived a perfect life. He is the only one, uh, John eight twenty nine says, who could say, I always do the things that are pleasing to my heavenly father. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That's what Jesus said. And only Jesus could say that, right? But despite his perfection, despite the fact that his life would have the perfect approval of the Father, he was put to death. Jesus died so that he could pay the penalty for sinners. That was the Father's plan, that was his plan. He gave up his life to die as a sacrifice for sin. And on the third day, he rose. 
He was raised in victory over sin, over death, and then he ascends to the Father, and he's promised us that one day he's coming back, and he's gonna judge the world. So again, the starting point to pleasing God is to trust in Christ, to call out for forgiveness, to beg him for mercy. That's what pleases God. And then if you do that, not only does God save you, he begins a transformation. The spirit of Christ comes to indwell you and there's a, what there is, this is sanctification, is a growing desire to keep pleasing God. Maybe we'll address it in this series. Remember Joseph when Potiphar's wife was coming after him sexually? Come lie with me, let's go to bed right now, my master's gone. He says, how could I do that against my God? His concern wasn't his job. His concern wasn't even his reputation with the people. His concern was displeasing God. In 2 Corinthians chapter five, Paul says, we make it our aim to please him. In 2 Timothy 2, 4, Paul compares the Christian life to a soldier whose driving desire is to please his commander. That's us. We wanna please the one who saved us, the one who rescued us. Ephesians 5.10 says we should be trying to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So you have a tough situation. You don't just say, Lord, get me out. It's, Lord, how can I please you in this situation? That's what it is to be a Christian. And Paul's prayer for the Colossians was that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. He says, fully pleasing to him. So I know I'm throwing a lot of verses at you, but I just want you to see that this idea, this theme of pleasing God is not an isolated concept. It's why we're here. It's the foundation for a holy life. So if you wanna start making more and more progress in personal holiness, if you wanna see your life or your marriage or your family and we collectively wanna see our church more and more reflect the holiness of God, that's the starting point. What pleases God? There are all kinds of tips, and some are good, practical tips as to ways to avoid sin, ways to fight against sin. Those are good things. But the starting point is this, to please God. That's where you and I should start every morning. That's where you and I need to start with regard to our marriage and our workplace in our life among our own communities. I'm here to please God. That's why we're here. So we're gonna take a moment to respond. Jim will come up, play briefly. Write whatever you like as a response. There's, if you have the notes page from the bulletin, you can jot something at the bottom maybe. Something you wanna keep with you this week, something you wanna share with someone this week. And then we'll have a time to pray, and you can respond, you can pray with those around you, you can pray alone. And then I'll close this in a prayer, and we'll sing one final song, and then I'll dismiss with the, with the benediction. Let's pray. And let's respond to our God and Father who has so graciously called us. We displease him so many times. But he's reminding us today, you're here to please me. Let's respond. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a simple reminder in these three words that 
you've given us by the Apostle Paul, by your Holy Spirit. We're here to please you. You are a holy God and what you desire is for us to walk in holiness. As leaders and as members of the church, as we minister to others, remind us that that's our goal as well. We want to please you in the way that we minister and want to raise up children and new Christians to please you. May that be the driving force behind all the other desires. We want sheep that are attending. We want sheep that are connected. We want sheep we don't have to be chasing after. We want sheep who are ministering and serving, but behind all that, Father, we want sheep who want to please you. We want to be those kinds of sheep in your flock, Lord Jesus. Prepare our hearts for the weeks to come as we begin this series on sexual purity. You know how important it is in all our lives personally and in the cultural situation that we are. But you have placed us here as weak and as imperfect as we are. As, as often as we may fail, you have us here as light in a dark world. And we pray that as we pursue the light of Christ, you would grant us joy and unity and effectiveness as your people. Help us to pursue more than the passing temporary pleasures of life to pursue the greater pleasures and the infinite reward of serving Christ and knowing that he will one day say to us, well done, my good and faithful servant. May we be driven to please our Lord and our master. We ask in his name and for his glory, amen.